knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this very first episode of Trivial Knowledge. I created this podcast to explore our universe together. We'll go back in time to learn about ancient history, across the oceans to understand other cultures, journey through athletics, science, technology, and more. Each episode will give you a weekly dose of knowledge from five topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. So let's dive in to episode one. It's all about the pyramids. Social Sciences Our first stop on today's episode brings us to an archaeological site near Mosul in modern-day northern Iraq. It is here that the Library of Ashurbanipal was discovered by British archaeologist Sir Austin Henry Layard in 1850. At the age of 22, Layard was to follow in his family's footsteps and serve in the British civil service at Shalom, a British crown colony of present-day Sri Lanka. The easiest way for him to get to Shalon would have been by water, but Sir Austin Layard instead took the way less traveled by through Asia, and this choice would change his life. During his journey, he was fascinated by the ancient Assyrian ruins he came across in Persia and Turkey. He was so enthralled by these ruins that he rebelled against family tradition, rejecting the British civil service and becoming an archaeologist instead now famous for unearthing the palace of King Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was the last great king of the Assyrian Empire. He was an unfaltering martial commander who was cruel to his enemies. But if you were his subject, you would probably have loved him for his fair rule. He reigned over a large area of land, which included Babylon, Persia, Syria, and Egypt from approximately 668 BC to 627 BC. While he was immensely successful as king, he wasn't in line to inherit the throne until his elder brother died. This afforded him additional opportunities growing up, including learning how to read and write, which was rare for kings of his time. This love of learning led him to become a collector of texts and tablets, and he would send scribes all over the Assyrian Empire, looking for tablets to add to his collection. His royal library, located in Nineveh, consisted of approximately 30,000 tablets and writing boards, many of which were severely fragmented at the time of their discovery. While the majority of his tablets were on legislation, foreign correspondences, aristocratic declarations, and financial matters, he also collected other texts, including texts on omens, incantations, and hymns, and texts on medicine, astronomy, and literature. His library was also one of the first, if not the first library, to organize its books by subject, similar to modern-day libraries. One of the most famous tablets housed in his library was the Epic of Gilgamesh, a masterpiece of ancient Babylonian poetry, regarded as the earliest surviving great work of literature. If you would like to learn more about the Epic of Gilgamesh, I have posted a blog on the topic on my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. The capital city of Nineveh was destroyed in the palace burned in 612 BC by a coalition of Babylonians, Scythians, and Medes. It is thought that the burning likely baked the tablets, which helped keep them preserved. 
The majority of the tablets are now held in the British Museum in London, England, where they have 30,943 tablets in their Nineveh collection. One of the current projects at the museum is aimed at documenting and creating an electronic database of the library, including high-quality images of every tablet within it. Currently, two-thirds of the tablets have been photographed. If you would like to learn more about this project, you can visit the project's webpage within the British Museum's research website at www.britishmuseum.org backslash research backslash projects for more information. This link will also be available on my website. Sports and Entertainment If you follow baseball, you likely know that Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is home to the Major League Baseball team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, a team that holds five World Series. Only the diehard baseball fans might know that the Pirates were not the first professional baseball team to call Pittsburgh home. That honor belongs to the minor league baseball team, the Pittsburgh Allegheny. This team is not to be confused with the major league team of the same name, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, who would eventually become today's Pittsburgh Pirates. At the time of the team's formation, Pittsburgh housed three independent baseball clubs, the Enterprise, the Olympic, and the Xantha. Following a lost bid to have a franchise in baseball's National League in February 1876, Local organizers were disappointed, and they decided to form the Allegheny Baseball Club. The club played their very first game as an independent on April 15, 1876, where they defeated the Xanthas 7-3 at Union Park. But they wouldn't stay independent for long. On February 20, 1877, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania saw the foundation of the International Association. The association would include seven teams from the United States and Canada, including Pittsburgh Allegheny, who joined the league on February 26, 1877 for a $25 entry fee. These seven teams would become part of the first minor league in baseball history. The team had a successful first season in the league, boasting the second best winning percentage at 13 wins and six losses. They were also unique in that they only fielded 12 players in that first season, and all 12 made it into the major league the following season. They again had top players in their second season in the International Association, and two of them, Chappie Lane and George Strife, would even go on to play for the Major League Pittsburgh Alleghenies. George Strife would hit the first ever home run in Pittsburgh Pirates history, five years before the team entered the National League. Another famous player from that 1878 season would be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. His name was Mickey Welch, and he was an 18-year-old pitcher from Brooklyn, New York, born to Irish immigrant parents. He made his major league debut for the Troy Trojans in 1880, and he was the third ever pitcher to accumulate 300 victories. He also holds the record for the most consecutive batters struck out to begin a game, striking out nine batters on August 28, 1884. The team's manager was Denny McKnight, a Pittsburgh native and son of a Republican congressional legislator. He graduated in 1869 from Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, before becoming the director of an iron manufacturing company. His career path took a slight turn as he jumped into baseball as manager of the Pittsburgh Allegheny. Following his manager stint, he would serve as the International Association's president, and then later managed the Major League Alleghenies in their 1884 season. 
You may wonder if the minor league Pittsburgh Allegheny team didn't turn into the Pittsburgh Pirates, what happened to them? Unfortunately, the team folded after only a second season in the International Association. It just couldn't compete with the local independent squads in Pittsburgh. For anyone wondering about the team's place in baseball history, though, it does hold two historic firsts. On June 2, 1877, the team played in the first professional game to be decided in 19 innings when they defeated a club from Memphis, Tennessee. Then 18 days later, they would play in the first game to be decided in 17 innings when they tied Indianapolis. While the team was short-lived, they put their mark on Major League Baseball, having several players go on to find success in the Major League. Science and Technology Now, it's time to cross the Atlantic and visit the City of Light, Paris, home to the Louvre Museum, the world's largest art museum. But the museum is not our destination for today. Instead, we are going to delve into the creation of its iconic entrance, the Louvre Pyramid. The pyramid sits in the center of the court of Napoleon. Its clean glass and steel structure, a stark contrast to the French Renaissance architecture of the museum itself. It was designed by the famous Chinese-American architect, I.M. Pei, after he was commissioned by Francois Mitterrand, the president of France, to update the museum's entrance. I.M. Pei was born in China in 1917. He traveled to the United States to study architecture at MIT and Harvard in 1935. He is known for his modernist style with Cubist themes, and he often used circles, squares, and triangles in his designs. Famous buildings he designed, which are accessible to visitors, include the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, Massachusetts, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, the East Building of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and of course, the Louvre Pyramid in Paris, France. Prior to designing the pyramid, I.M. Pei made several visits to France to study the museum's entrances and architecture. He wanted to determine the best way to create an entrance that would accommodate more visitors. He finally settled on creating a brand new entrance in the courtyard between the museum's buildings. His design was innovative. It involved constructing one large pyramid surrounded by three smaller pyramids, as well as creating an inverted pyramid that would be built under the courtyard itself. The main pyramid would need to withstand strong wind loads, and as Pei did not have an engineering background, he contracted the Canadian engineering firm Nicolette Chartrand Knoll. The problem with choosing this firm was that while they were an expert on concrete, they did not have much experience with the rod and cable system that would be needed for the pyramid. They in turn had to subcontract RFR of Paris, France to help with the design subtleties. Martin Francis did most of the consulting work for RFR. He had a background as a yacht designer, which was beneficial in designing the pyramid stainless steel cable system. A Massachusetts company called Navtech, which were known for the rigging on their bills for the America Cup yachts, was hired to build the steel girders and cables for the pyramid structure. I.M. Pei also envisioned a clear, transparent glass to be used in the pyramid, and he felt the normal process for making glass wasn't going to be transparent enough for him. In collaboration with Saint-Gobain, a French glass manufacturing company, a new manufacturing process was created for the pyramid's glass, 
which eliminated the greenish hue that resulted from other processes. White sand from the French town Fontenay Bleu was used for the creation of this new glass. The glass was given the nickname Diamond Glass for its clarity and for the fact that it was very expensive to create. To protect visitors in case the glass structure were to shatter, the creators took a page from car windshield manufacturers. They used a lamination method that would retain the glass fragments if the pyramids were to break. The entire design consists of 675 diamond-shaped and 118 triangular-shaped glass segments, along with 128 steel crisscrossing girders tied together by 16 cables. There is a conspiracy theory that there are actually 666 glass panes in the pyramid, but this theory has been debunked. Surprisingly, the pyramid has never needed to be repaired, although there is enough glass segments and storage to build an entirely new pyramid. Anyone who has clean windows may also be wondering, how are these glass pyramids kept sparkling clean? The answer, robots. Robots have been cleaning the pyramids since the 1990s, and before their creation, mountaineers were hired for the job. Advanced Robotic Vehicles, a Seattle company, created the current robot in use. The robot, controlled by a remote, climbs the pyramid on tracks, securing itself to the glass via suction cups, and then uses its squeegee and rotation brush to clean the panes. While the pyramid is now a landmark in Paris, there was a lot of controversy surrounding its construction. Many, understandably, thought that the style was inconsistent with the classic French Renaissance style of the Louvre and were upset a French architect had not been commissioned for the job. Other criticisms at the time can be succinctly summarized in a quote from a New York Times story published in 1985 and taken from the Architect Journal. The pyramid was an architectural joke, an eyesore, an anachronistic intrusion of Egyptian death symbolism in the middle of Paris in a megalomaniacal foley imposed by Mr. Mitterrand. Despite its controversial start, the pyramid has become I.M. Pei's most famous structure and can even be found in popular culture, including in the movie The Da Vinci Code, based on the book by Dan Brown. Geography and World Culture While the Louvre Pyramid is from the modern day, when people think of ancient pyramids, most think of the large structures found in Egypt or those built by the Mayans. Maybe you also think of other cultures that have used the pyramid shape, including the Greeks and the Romans. What the majority of people probably do not think of, unless you follow archaeology very closely, are the ancient Etruscans. The Etruscans dominated much of Italy for five centuries, starting around 900 BC. They thrived in central Italy, in the area of modern-day Tuscany and Umbria. It is from the Etruscans that the Romans learned city planning and engineering, and the Etruscans also influenced Roman architecture. It wasn't until 2012 where the use of pyramids was discovered. A group of archaeologists were in Orvieto, Italy, excavating a wine cellar owned by Antonio Pilocha when the first Etruscan pyramid was discovered. Orvieto, Italy is a small town that sits atop a large tufa volcanic stone overlooking the Umbria Plains. The town itself is known for its Gothic cathedral built to commemorate the miracle at Bolsena. It is also known for its traditional white wine that is aged in the Tufa Cliffs. 
What it wasn't known for, at least until 2012, was Etruscan pyramids. David B. George of the Department of Classics at St. Anselm and Claudio Bizzari of Parco Archeologico Ambiental del Orvitano discovered the first pyramid inside a wine cellar located on Via Ripa Medici on the west side of Orvieto. It was during the excavation of the wine cellar that they first noticed a series of ancient stairs carved into the wall. They continued to dig downward, first breaking through a mid-20th century floor and then a medieval floor before finding a layer of fill containing pottery and other objects, some of which were dated back further than 1000 BC. The excavators also noted that the cave walls to the space were tapered up like a pyramid, truncated at the top to support a home built in the medieval times. This pyramid, known in archaeology as Cavita 254, was connected to a second pyramid by an Etruscan tunnel. Since this first discovery, a total of five Etruscan pyramids have been located under the city. Many theories on what these pyramids were used for have been put forth. One of the most recent was discussed in a master thesis written by Kelsey Latcha in 2018, a graduate student of Brandeis University. She proposed that the pyramid was possibly used as a tufa quarry and gives some compelling evidence to this effect. For those who would like to learn more about the pyramids and hear from someone with first-hand experience at the site, Kelsey Latch's thesis can be found on Brandeis' University's Institutional Repository website at www.bit.brandeis.edu. Today's Random Topic our last stop on today's journey, conveyed to us via the random Wikipedia page, brings us to a small community in Canada called Pinaton Lake. Pinaton Lake is home to 500 residents and is located approximately 20 minutes outside Kamloops, British Columbia. The community sits on a lake that has two separate parts known as Big Pinaton and Little Pinaton. The lake itself is shaped like a shoe or moccasin from which it gets its name, Pinatint, which means shoe in traditional Aboriginal language. Like many lakes, Pinatint Lake is a popular place to swim, kayak, canoe, and fish, and also has public and private boat launches, though only little Pinatint Lake allows electric motors. The lake has a maximum depth of 60 feet and is iced over between November and mid-April. The community is located in a low, broad valley of Paul Creek with the Engelmann spruce tree being the main forest growth at the bottom of the valley. The town itself has a general store, a small school, and a resort for travelers. For those who want to make the trip to Pinaton Lake, the closest airport is in Kamloops, located approximately 18 miles to the west of the town. If you enjoy the outdoors and love the quiet of secluded areas, this small Canadian town may be for you. That concludes this first episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to read the blog post discussing the Epic of Gilgamesh found in the Library of Asher Banapal, would like links to more in-depth articles on topics you enjoyed, or would like a sneak peek about next week's episode, 
please visit my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we learn the connection between Beacon Hill, England and Sherlock Holmes and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Benjamin Franklin. An investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.